All right, let's get started with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we give you thanks today um, that we are able to be here. We give you thanks for the opportunity to gather with friends and to study your word together. I pray that you would be with our time. I ask that you would um, fill me with your spirit, bring clarity to my mind, to my speech. I pray that I would be faithful to your word. I ask that you would be with all of us, that our, your word would penetrate into our hearts and that we would be changed because of the time that we are gathered here today. Thank you so much, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 today. Now, as we approach this chapter, I want to remind us that this chapter needs to be studied and read within its context. I know it's hard to keep that in mind because, you know, like we're focused on one section and then it, the way my mind works is, okay, I was on chapter six. That's about loving God with all your heart. Now I'm moving on to something different and it's a whole new thing, but that's not true. It's all connected to each other. So we have to read and understand chapter seven in light of what we studied last week. It's not separate. It's a continuation of the great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as we head in our text for today, I want us to hold in our minds the end of chapter 6, which reads, And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. He brought them out to bring them in and to give them the land that he swore that he would give to their fathers. And obedience to God's commands are for their preservation, for their good and for their preservation. Now, look with me at how chapter 7 flows seamlessly from that. Look at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. All right, so I want you to notice a few things. Notice, first of all, the surety of what is about to happen. He is, there is surety with them entering to, into the land. It says, when, not if, the Lord your God brings you into the land. It says, when, not if, the Lord your God gives the enemies over to them. So there is surety in what is about to happen with them. God will do this. 
It is a sure thing. There is nothing that they need to, to doubt because God has declared that he would do this. The second thing I want you to notice about these verses is the specificity. There is specificity to the nations that they are going to be devoting to destruction. It was the seven that were listed there. That's important for us to notice, that there is specific nations that God is referring to. The third thing I want you to notice is the significance of seven nations. There's significance to that. The number seven in Scripture typically refers to something that is complete or full. And so what is being communicated in this passage of Scripture is that the enemy that they are going up against is massive. This is the complete, the nations of the land, and they're, they're an enemy that is so much more greater than they are that it would be actually impossible for them to do this on their own. That's what's being communicated with the number seven. It's impossible for them, the Israelites, to go in in their own strength to fight this enemy. And God wants them to understand what that they can't, but he can. So the next thing I want you to notice is God's sovereignty over these events. It's the Lord your God that is going to bring them into the land. It's the Lord your God that is going to give their enemies over to them. It's the Lord God who's doing this. He's been sovereign throughout the whole entire story of Israel. He is sovereign from the point of creation. He's sovereign in creation and over creation. God is sovereign when he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their offspring. God was sovereign in the Exodus when he brought them out of Egypt. God was sovereign over their wilderness wanderings. And now as they enter into the promised inheritance, he remains sovereign over the timing and the events and the victory. So God is sovereign. But yet in the midst of that sovereignty of God in this passage, we also see that there's man's responsibility, right? Israel's not just sitting in their tents, the, you know, watching the evening news, waiting for God to do the thing that he said he would do. They're not just sitting there. There's activity for them as well. We see this throughout all of Scripture. God is sovereign over everything. Everything, Nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. And yet there is responsibility that we are a part of. We, we are required to act and to move. And so there was activity for Israel as well. He, God's sovereign work is done through the activity of their obedience to his commands. That's how he does things. That's how he works. The, the next book, the book of Joshua, tells the story so well and shows us, it highlights for us when the people obeyed and how they obeyed and, and obediently followed the Lord's commands, mostly. And they obeyed and they walked over the Jordan River and God brought them into the land. And they obeyed and engaged in battles with the enemy exactly how the Lord commanded them to do. And so the truth of man's responsibility in the midst of God's sovereignty has application for us today. It has application for us in our salvation. 
God is completely and totally responsible for man's salvation, for us coming to faith. He's responsible for the plan, for the carrying out of the plan. He gives people the faith to believe. It's all of grace. And yet, throughout Scripture, there is a call for man to respond to the message of salvation. They're called to repent. We are called to repent and obey the call of salvation. So God is sovereign over salvation, but there's a responsibility, a response that is required of man. It's also there in sanctification. As God is sanctifying us, he is doing the work, and yet we are called to work as well. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see the sovereignty of God at work in us, making us holy, making us more like Christ, as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as we submit ourselves under the authority of God's word under the um, and walk in obedience to it. So there's this double thing going on here. So in salvation and in sanctification, but also in gospel proclamation. And this kind of ties us back into the first one. But God is saving people. That's his work. That's what he's doing in the world today. He is saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nations. But just because God is the one who is doing the work in saving people doesn't mean we sit at home and do nothing. Because the means by which God is working is through the gospel proclamation of his people. Those who have been saved, those who have been redeemed, now go out and declare the excellencies of the one who had called them out of darkness. This is the way God works in the world. He is sovereign, but he calls us to work alongside of him, and he works his sovereign will through his people. So we see in this text in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, God's sovereignty in the, in the work and in, in bringing the people into the land. But the text also tells us what Israel is going to be doing, how they're going to be doing this how they're going to walk in obedience to the commands of God. And it's through devoting to destruction both the people and their practices. The people and the practices of the land. Look again at verses 2 through 5. And when the Lord God, your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and you shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your sons to their daughters or taking their son, daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their car carved images with fire. So they were called to devote all of the people and all of the practices to complete destruction. Now the Hebrew word, let's just, we're going to have to spend a little bit of talking about this because this is a tough text. It really is. So the Hebrew word for devoting to complete destruction is haram. That's the verb. And it literally means to ban from common use. 
to separate out from everyday use and in this context here in scripture to devote those people to God for his purposes. So that's what the word means, devoted to destruction, for the, to devote, to separate this people out and they are devoted to God and God's purposes for them. Now, just a moment here, look down at, at the next at verse six with me. It says, for you, speaking of Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy means to separate out from common use and be devoted to God for his purposes. Notice the commonality between these two ideas. Haram means to devote to God for destruction. And holy means to be devoted to God for mercy. There is a connection between these two peoples. We have one group of people that are devoted to God for destruction, and we have one other group of people that has been devoted to God for salvation. And as we take a step back from the whole of chapter 7, we realize that we are being really given a snapshot of the entire redemption story in this one chapter. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of God. There is a picture of God. We see his glory on display in this chapter as we can see both his holy, righteous judgment and also his grace and mercy in his provision of salvation. There's also a picture of humanity. All of humanity, because of the fall, is devoted to destruction. Because we collectively follow after idols, walk in unrepentant wickedness, but yet at the same time, out of that people, God has called some to be set apart and holy and devoted to him in love and holiness. So we're going to look first at the first group of people, the people that were devoted to God for destruction. We need to understand something as we look at this command and as we look at this passage of scripture in Deuteronomy, that this command was for a specific people at this specific time. It is not for all people, for all times. Sometimes we have to understand that about scripture. Some things do not carry forward into our 21st century in exactly the same way. So this command to devote these people to complete destruction is for that specific, those specific groups of people, the seven tribes that were listed in that period of time for the purpose that God had intended. And it is not to be re repeated. It is not ethnic cleansing. It is not genocide. It was not permission, as some have wrongly assumed that this is permission from scripture for ethnic cleansing or genocide. This is the only instance in scripture where this was commanded. And it was specific for this time, for this place, for this people, and for God's specific purposes. And let's look at those purposes. There are three purposes that God had in this passage. It's for the purpose of judgment. It was for the purpose of fulfilling his word, his promise that he gave, that he was giving this land to Israel. And it was um, for the purpose of preservation and pr protection of the people. Let's look first at God's righteous judgment on wickedness. In Genesis, 
we have seen, or in the first five books of the New Testament, or Old Testament, we've seen God's righteous judgment on wickedness. He judged in the flood. In the same kind of way, the people's wickedness had come to its completion. God had determined that he would devote them to complete destruction, and he brought the flood on them. Sodom and Gomorrah is another picture that we get of God's activity of judgment. And then here again in the conquest of Canaan, we see God's activity in bringing just judgment. But what we need to realize as we look at each of those um, occasions where God brought judgment, there was opportunity for repentance. There's always opportunity for repentance. In the flood, there were 120 years that Noah was building the ark. He was a preacher of righteousness. There was opportunity for repentance. Even in Sodom and Gomorrah, there was opportunity for repentance as the king of Sodom met with Abraham shortly before fire came down from heaven. There was opportunity for repentance. And here in Canaan, we know that there was opportunity for repentance because God had talked about this all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, 15, when he was um, covenanting with Abraham and he was giving Abraham the plans for the future. And he's like, Abraham, you're actually, you're in the promised land, but you're, you're, your offspring are going to be leaving it. They're going to be sojourners in another nation. Um, you're going to die here. You're not going to see the fulfillment of all my promises. Your offspring are going to be exiled for 400 years. And he says, they shall come back here into, in the fourth generation for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites, the Canaanites, this group of people that we're talking about today, is not yet complete. For 400 years, the Lord kept his chosen people in Egypt, in slavery, suffering. Weren't they suffering? Because he was showing grace to the Amorites, to the Canaanites in that land. Everything God did, does is right and good and true. And he was, it was an opportunity for the people of the land to repent of their sin. And for 400 years, they had that opportunity. And they saw God's work from afar. They saw, saw God's work as he worked through, through Israel and as he redeemed Israel. They knew about it. They heard about how God had miraculously redeemed the people. They saw his wonders. They heard about it. They also would have heard about how God had protected this massive group of people wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, how he provided for them. God is showing himself to the world, the known world at that time, so that they would repent. He would have, his glory was displayed as Israel had gone up against Sihon and Og. And God gave them that victory. So all of this, this work that God was doing was revealing, not just to Israel, but to the people of Canaan, the greatness of this God. He is the one true God. He is the only God. And it's testifying to that testifying to his grace and mercy as well as his justice and his righteousness 
And we know that there were people who heard the message. I don't think scripture tells us all of them, but we do know that there were Egyptians even who came out with Israel, who believed in this God because they had seen his mighty works and they believed and they, they chose to join themselves with the people of God. And we know that Rahab and anybody who was in her house was not devoted to destruction. They were saved because they found, she found refuge from God in God's people. So there's this opportunity for repentance and so we can know that this judgment, this judgment of God, falls on those who are unrepentant. It's safe for us to conclude that we're not looking at God bringing fire down from heaven on innocent people who are sinless. They are unrepentant. They've had opportunity for repentance, and when their wickedness has reached its completeness or its fullness, the door was going to be closed. Now, what do we know about the wickedness of the people of the land? Well, we know that they were a violent people. They were filled with violence. But we also know that their idolatry had led them into two sins. One was the destruction and the killing of their own children as burnt offerings. They would offer their own children to Moloch. And they were also known for their sexual perversions. So for the killing of their children and for sexual perversions. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Feels a little bit like our own world. Have mercy. God in his infinite wisdom and righteousness, righteous judgment and in his sovereign timing deemed that now was the time. The door was closed. Today is judgment day. Through devoting the inhabitants of Canaan and their practices to destruction, God is bringing his just judgment on sin. He is fulfilling his promise to give them the land, and he is also preserving his people. So judgment, fulfillment of promise, and preservation of his people. Look with me again at verse 3. It says, you shall not intermarry with them. Why? Because they would turn you away from God so that you would worship other gods. So the point of this destruction of, of the people and the practices is so that Israel would not be entrapped, snared, led away, married. They were not to have any alliance. They were not to marry themselves, whether it was political or through marriage. They were not to covenant because covenanting with the people of the land would be unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. You can't covenant with God and with man or with the world. We try to marry these two together all the time, and it is not possible. It's faithfulness to God and God alone. We cannot try to serve God and this world. And so covenanting with them, whether it be through political alliances or marriage, is unfaithfulness to God. Nine, verse 9 talks about, um, let me find it here. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. That includes Israel. If Israel, the people of God, hate him and walk in hatred towards him, they will experience judgment. So God is calling them into relationship of love with him so that he can preserve them. And then in verses 25 through 26, it says that the carved images of their gods, you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So by bringing even in the silver and the gold into their homes because it devotes them to destruction. So remember the story of Achan? This made the story of Achan and Joshua make sense to me because that's exactly what he did. He brought in the, the booty when he was told not to, and he was devoted to destruction. So God is at work commanding them and telling them to do this so that he can preserve them to preserve his people. Why is this so important? Why is it so important for them to be preserved? Because there is so much at stake, right? God's word is at stake. He made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And if Israel, the offspring of those men, is destroyed because of their sin and rebellion, what would happen to the promises of God? So God's word is at stake. The promises are at stake. And we know, living in, in where we live in redemptive history, that all the promises that God had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to J Jacob are fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So the, the gospel is what is at stake right now at this point in history. What God is doing through the people of Israel is preserving the gospel, the Messiah, the one who is to come to bless all of the nations. Now, as we reflect on the story of Israel, we know from our study in, in the book of Judges that they did not do well. They did have some victories. They did get in the land. They did conquer the land but yet they did not devote to destruction the people of the land. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, we learn that the people of Israel had become just like the people of Canaan, right? They were violent, destroying each other. They were sacrificing their own children to Yahweh. So they had merged the worship of Moloch to the worship of God, offering their own child, children, as sacrifices, and they were filled with sexual perversion. And yet, God was faithful to preserve a remnant within the people of Israel. We know the story that follows right on the heels of Judges is the book of Ruth. 
where we see a Moabite woman who is an outsider brought into the people of God, marrying and covenanting and tying herself to God through his people and through Ruth. At this time, we eventually get the Messiah. God is watching over his word in order to perform it in the past, in the present, and in the future that is to come. And while this is a never-to-be-repeated moment in history, we in our day have some things that we can learn from this story, from this command to devote to complete destruction, the people and the practices of the land. We can learn that sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. I think so often that we don't look at our sin as something deserving of destruction. And yet God looks at our sin in that way. All we have to do is look at the cross if we want to know how heinous sin is when God's wrath is poured out on his son. And so we should view our sin through God's eyes. And it's a gift of grace when we are able to hate our sin as God does. And so the application for us today is that we are to fight our indwelling sin with the same mindset. Devote it to destruction. Don't play with your sin. Don't flirt with it. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. He's not telling us to literally pluck out our eyes. He's speaking with hyperbole, as he was known to do, to make a point at how serious it is. It is better for you to enter into heaven with one eye than to enter into hell with two. Fight sin. Don't flirt with it. Don't covenant with it. Don't marry it. Don't bring it home into your house. But rather, devote that sin to destruction. The second thing we need to know from um, this, these verses is that the day of judgment is coming. There is a day coming. And we live right now in this context in the age of grace, an age of mercy. The opportunities are abundant for repentance. Today, always, today is the day of salvation. This judgment day in, these, in this Old Testament passage that's coming and that we see played out in Joshua and Judges, this is pointing to a greater judgment day. It's shadows. And just as God said that he would bring judgment on the people of the land of Canaan, he has said in his word that there is a day of the Lord that is coming where judgment will come. The opportunity for repentance will close. And God will bring judgment on all who have rejected his salvation. His son, Jesus, will be judged and they will be sent into an eternity under the wrath of God. We do live in a period of opportunity and that should give us this urgency in our heart to be witnesses and to speak and to live and to fight our sin, knowing that the day is coming ever closer. So let's continue on. God in his divine sovereignty devoted the unrepentant 
people and practices to destruction. And this is all for his glory. He is glorified in this. Romans 9 tells us that it says this, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? God is making known the riches of his glory in judgment on wickedness. But he is also making known the riches of his glory in showing mercy on Israel. Let's look at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was uh, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Again, observe with me, God's sovereign choice is based on God and nothing in man. There was nothing in Israel that made God choose them. It's God's just making his own choice because that's what he wanted to do. Romans 9.11 says, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, not because of something in us, not because of something in Israel, but because of him who calls. He is glorified in election. Romans 9.15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's a whole on God. It is out of God's sovereignty that he chose Israel. Israel is God's treasured possession, not because they were great in and of themselves. Scripture actually te testifies to the complete opposite. It testifies to their wickedness over and over again. But God set them apart as his treasured possession because God is great and because he chose to do so. He chose to set his love on them. He chose to reveal himself to them. He chose to redeem them from slavery with his mighty hand. He chose to enter into covenant with them and give them his law. He chose them for his divine love so that he could show his love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. When we hear that idea of thousands of generations, we are to understand what's being communicated is forever. It's forever. This is not temporary, what he's talking about. This is 
forever. And we are given here the purpose of God in the world out of all the peoples in the world, all of whom hate him and are destined for destruction. God is in the act of creating a people to love him and keep his commandments. This is the Bible in a nutshell. From Genesis to Revelation, this is what the story is. God is creating a people to love him and to keep his commandments. They are going to be his people and he will be their God. And he says to Israel, you're the ones that I've decided to do this through. Because I have chosen you, because I have set my love on you, because I have redeemed you, because I have revealed myself to you. You shall therefore keep, be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. You, Israel, are the people that I have chosen to set my love on. You are my treasured possession. The ones in whom I've set my mercy. Therefore, live according what I've called you to do. Live according to my purpose. And then he goes on to tell what what he has in store for people who love him, the people who are his treasured possession, his people, the ones that he has called out, grabbed out for his own possession. He says to them in verse 12, And because you listen to the rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. This is what he's going to do. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you. Wow, what an incredible blessing. Every time I read these passages of scripture, I'm just reminding over and over again that God is a generous God. He is showering blessing. It is his propensity to pour out good things on his people. We see this in Genesis all the way through. And everything in me, in my fallen nature, says God is stingy. He's withholding good from you. And the exact opposite is true. God's word tells us in his word, he is constantly showing us, look at my generosity. Look at how I want to bless you. Trust me. Obey me. He is pouring out glorious riches on his people. Immeasurable grace. That is what God has in store for those who love him. Think about this, all of this, in contrast to what is in store for those who hate him. 
For those who hate God, there is no prosperity. There is no blessing. There is no fruitfulness. No, over and over again is the message of destruction for those who reject God. But for those who love him and keep his commandments, they are loved, they are blessed, they are flourishing. This is God's complete purpose and plan in the world right here in Deuteronomy 7. God is at work in the world redeeming a people to himself. A people once devoted to destruction, but have been separated out, chosen by God to love him, to obey his commands in response to his generous love to them. His purpose and plan to create his people began before the foundations of the world, before God ever spoke the universe into existence. This plan was in place. Creation and the fall were both a part of his plan to create a people for his glory. And this plan finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Israel was a miserable failure. They were. They did not do anything that they were told to do. They saw everything, all that God was doing. They did not live up to these commands in Scripture. And they never fully achieved the blessing. But the reality is, of course they failed. Of course they did. That was not a surprise to God. They were sinners in need of a Savior. God's purpose in Israel is not that they would be the Savior, but it would be that through them the Savior would come. It was they were simply the conduit or the womb, if you will, that would give birth to the Messiah, the one that they needed and the one that we need. Jesus is the Savior brought through Israel. It's what God is at work in Israel. It's always, always about his Messiah. And Jesus is the Savior Israel needed, and they were waiting by faith for him. And Jesus is the Savior we need and we receive by faith. His immeasurable love on vivid display in his incarnation, his perfect life, his cruel death in our place, his resurrection from the dead, not only gives us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life in his presence, but this love is the very thing that turns our hearts to love him and walk in obedience to the command. He and he alone is the means by which the people of God love him and keep his commandments for thousands of years, for thousands of generations, or in other words, for all of eternity. We are the people of God today because of Jesus. First Peter says almost exactly the same thing as it says in Deuteronomy 7 when he speaks of the believers in Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter's teaching us by using the exact same language 
to, to describe the church as Moses used to describe Israel, that all who trust in the promises of God are true Israel. All truly are the people of God. And because of this, this blessing that we read in verses 12 through 16 is for all the people of God, both then and now. But as you might have guessed, we said, just like Israel sat all those years ago on the brink of the Jordan River, waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. As you read through that list, those promises are not fulfilled today. They have yet to be fulfilled. We're waiting for them. We all have been sick and we've not been healed. We don't, not every womb is full, right? So those promises have not yet happened. The flourishing has not yet happened. But we are waiting with great longing for a day that is to come where these promises will be fully fulfilled. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This connects to Deuteronomy 7. This is what we are waiting for with longing. This is what Israel had prom promised to them, and this is promised to us. So God, so as they are, as we continue, we're going to finish up here in just a few minutes. But Israel had this promise set before them, the promise of an inheritance of a land, blessing, and flourishing. But first, they had to fight some battles, didn't they? They were called to live their life and to fight. And God, through Moses, told them how to fight. He told them to fight without fear. So, because it is he who is fighting for them. So let's conclude our time with these last verses. If you say in your heart, verse 17 says, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you, but the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it. 
for it is devoted to destruction. I'm repeatedly struck by the truth that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Israel is facing a changing world. They're transitioning in their leadership. They're transitioning in their location. They are heading into a world that is filled with idolatry, filled with the enemies of God, filled with wickedness, filled with people who will hate them and work against them and fight against them. And yet God commissions them to go into the world without fear and dispossess the land. How? Four ways. By remembering God. Remembering God and all that he has done for them in the past. He points them again in the text over and over. He wants to point them and have them remember their redemption. How God had saved them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out with wonders and signs and a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So they're remembering God's work in the past and they're called to remember the promises of God that he will continue to fight for them. He's going to do the same thing that he had already done for them. While they're in Canaan, he's going to um, bring these hornets. What are the hornets? They, they were common hornets. They were bees, virulent, large hornets that were common in Canaan. Think about what it's like when a bee comes after you, like a little one. It's, imagine if it's a bigger one. What I run in terror. Like, I'm afraid of bees. I don't want to get stung by a hornet. You know, so there's a what's being communicated is there's God is going to Give the, the people of the land a sense of fear and panic at Israel. This is what God is going to do on their behalf. So remember that. Hold fast to his promises. Trust him. The third thing there to remember is to remember that the Lord is in their midst. You shall not, verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He's going to drive them away little by little, not all at once. Little by little by little. That phrase jumps out at me as I read it when I think about my own life. And I'm, this, is, this is like a bonus track here. Um, but the fact of the matter is, that's how God works in each one of us too, doesn't he? As he's sanctifying us. We are not sanctified all at once. That's what we want. Like, I totally want to be like, I pray, Jesus, save me. And oh, it's all done. There's no work involved, and I'm perfectly sanctified and holy. But that's not how it works. It's little by little, degree by degree, over the course of our entire lives. That's what he's saying in this passage. He's going to drive out their enemies. He's going to drive out our enemies, little by little. But he's with them in their midst all the time that he's working. So they remember what God has done for them in the past, remembering that he doesn't change. He's going to be faithful to his word and do for them in the future. Remember that he's in their midst. And remember, fourthly, that their victory is sure. He says, you devote all the people and practices to destruction. I will give you their kings. You shall make those kings' names perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you. Their victory was sure because God was doing that for them. And so they could enter into the season of life without fear because of all of those things. And this is a word for us today. This is for us today. We live in a world filled with those who hate God. And we're starting to feel increasingly the heat of that, the pressure of that. We really are. And it's scary. It's scary. 
I want to honestly admit that sometimes when I listen to the news, I think, oh my word, what in the world is going to happen? What are we going to do? But this message is for us today. We are called to live in our day without fear for the same reasons. We are not going into our land, going to fight the enemies with weapons, swords, and and whatever you use in fighting battles. But Jesus called us to dispossess the land with the proclamation of the gospel. Did he not? Matthew 28, he said, go into all the nations, baptizing, uh, disciple all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We dispossess the nations by bringing the gospel to the nations, by proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Later on in that passage in 1 Peter, Peter tells, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are called to wage war against the sin in our soul and to dispossess the nations by proclaiming the gospel. But it's a scary world, and it's hard not to be afraid of what is to come. But God is calling us through his servant Moses to not be afraid. And we do that by intentionally remembering God and all he has done for us in Jesus and in salvation. He redeemed us. He was faithful to his promises in the past. And by a mighty hand and outstretched arms, Jesus has saved us. He's brought us into the people of God. And we remember that. We also remember the promises that we are still looking forward to. God is going to be faithful. He was faithful in the past. We have even more history than the Israelites had to remember the faithfulness of God. He continues to be with us, to fight for us, and to bring about his plan of redemption and restoration in this world. We can remember the past and we remember and look to the future knowing that God is faithful to his word. Third, we remember that God is in our midst. His presence is with us always, and he is at work in us, making us holy, little by little, degree by degree. And finally, we remember that victory is sure. We have the end of the book. We know the end of the story. There is no doubt. No matter what happens, There is no doubt that God wins. Victory is sure. He will give the kings into our hands. He will make their names perish from his land. No one shall be able to stand against you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, victory is sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we know the end of the story. And so we ask as we go about our day that we would be faithful to you, that we would remember your faithfulness, your love, that we would look forward to the hope that we have, that we would daily proclaim your excellencies in our world to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors, that we would fight the sin that dwells within us, and that we would walk in confidence knowing that we are loved by you and that our victory is sure. I pray all this in the powerful and precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.